Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Forum podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. The Menzies Foundation recently launched the Menzies Bushfire Leadership Appeal and on the basis of contributions from our stakeholders and a matched grant from the Foundation is in the process of developing an initiative to support bushfire-affected communities and their leaders to grapple with the challenges of this crisis. The bushfires over the Australian summer claimed lives, homes, destroyed crops and properties, closed roads, knocked out power, water, fuel, food supply and phone services. They decimated essential trade and stretched individuals and communities to breaking point. The fires were followed by severe flooding through parts of New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria. And if that wasn't enough, the world finds itself grappling with the unprecedented implications of coronavirus. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Mark Crosweller to the Menzies Leadership Forum. Mark, most recently, was the first Assistant Secretary of Australia's National Resilience Task Force, established by the federal government in May 2018. He's currently undertaking a PhD and has recently established Ethical Intelligence, a consultancy to support leaders. I met Mark at the South Australian Council of Social Services Conference in March 2020, at which he gave an excellent keynote on building social infrastructure. Mark's work over the last 20 years gives him a unique perspective on crisis response and the leadership qualities required to lead in these situations. Welcome, Mark. We're just so delighted that you can join us today. Uh, to begin with, can you tell us a little of your work over the last two decades? Yeah, certainly, Liz. So I started my career in the private sector, actually, when I left school in consulting engineering and about the same time joined uh, the New South Wales Rural Fire Service as a volunteer, um, initially just with the intention or motivation of being on the end of the hose and helping other people, essentially. So it was a pretty modest or humble intention. Um, but as time went on, I took a greater and greater interest in uh, the science of fire and the, um, the lived experience of fire, of course. It's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon to have to deal with. Progressed through engineering till about the age of 30 and then came on uh, board as a staff member of the Rural Fire Service as an inspector, then a superintendent, then an assistant commissioner, uh, then commissioner of emergency services in Canberra, uh, and then director general of emergency management Australia, and then finally to head up the task force for the federal government. So it's a whirlwind tour of a long 35-year career, but it really started off in quite humble beginnings at the end of the hose and really experiencing firsthand what it meant for people to suffer in crisis. Um, and it was predominantly fire and flood and storm, uh, natural hazards, natural perils. But it left a profound mark on me, I've got to say. Um, even briefing the Prime Minister, and I briefed, I was very fortunate to brief three Prime Ministers in the course of my, or the latter part of my career, I would call on that experience from my early 20s uh, through to my sort of mid-30s when I was operational to give depth, colour, shape, form and meaning to the advice I was giving, uh, you know, Australia's most senior politicians. So that lived experience was sort of fundamental to how I shaped advice to the government. And I came to realise during the course of that, that career that it was a great privilege to be of service to others, but also to sit in the space of someone who was less fortunate uh, or who was suffering on some level was actually giving me the opportunity to do the thing that I was called to do or um, uh, felt very deeply that was the right thing to do. So I came to realise there was a mutuality going on, that, that those who were suffering and those who could assist were in relationship. And it's kind of formed the fundamental basis of my leadership strategy for the last 20, 25 years is to really understand um, 
the egalitarian nature of what we do. And we're seeing this in COVID-19 at the moment. You know, Prince Charles has it. Um, Some of the monarchy in Europe have it. Um, You know, the structures of society, the structures of humanity, um, crisis has no time for at all. Absolutely not. It doesn't recognise structure, hierarchy or privilege. It affects everybody. And I found that in the bushfire crisis, um, and I've been to many bushfires in the course of my career, as well as floods, storms, cyclones, and human-caused suffering, motor vehicle accidents, house fires, uh, crime, uh, so on and so forth. So adversity is a great leveller, and it really brings us um, into relationship. It kind of forces us into relationship in some respects. And it tends to bring out the best and the worst. And generally, I speak to the best because I think that's the where we need to aim for, where we need to head. But it's always good to remember the worst because because we can end up there as well. So to answer your question, Liz, it's a it's a complex question. But sorry, a complex answer to probably a fairly simple question. Um, it started in humble beginnings, but it became a life's work. Um, and I realised that the lived experience was not to be divided between who I was, how I de- identified myself what I did as a career and how I acted as a father, for example, they were all intermixed and all part of a very, very complex web of this experience, which was teaching me essentially how to be a better human being. At the SACOS conference, you presented a really interesting framework in which to consider these matters. And I'd just like to spend a little time exploring this framework because I think it's a very useful way to unpack the role of leadership in how, um, as a community, we respond to crisis. You started the discussion by identifying the sort of six unprecedented, but you said not surprising, antecedent conditions that are shaping our future. Can you spend a little time just talking about those conditions and the impact they're having on our society? Yes, certainly. So um, the the first thing I think it's really important to understand, and it does relate very much to climate change, is that um, natural hazards are now more frequent and more intense than they've ever been in the course of modern human history. We've predicted these things in science for a good 20 to 30 years. Um, So they're not surprising to us on on one level, Um, but they are now manifest. So they've now turned up in reality, and we've just lived through um, a significant drought and a subsequent uh, catastrophic bushfire season through much of Australia, uh, certainly the east coast of Australia, but down through the southern states and even into western Australia, didn't escape the impact. So first and foremost, I think there is an increasing intensity and frequency of natural hazards, which we're now experiencing. The interconnectedness and interdependency of systems uh, and our relationship with those systems is also uh, unprecedented. So uh, to give you a really simple example that, we sort of can't live without our mobile phone. If I was to say to an audience, uh, hand over your phone for two weeks, how, how would they feel about it? And most people would have some sort of existential anxiety about not being able to be connected with the world. Um, after about a week, you might find yourself quite relaxed just quietly. But, but we are very connected to our systems. We're very reliant upon our systems. Um, our systems rely on each other. So our telecommunication systems support our water systems, support our food systems, uh, support our energy systems. So they're all interconnected and we have a relationship with them. We draw great uh, senses of security and safety um, from our relationship with those systems. And if those systems don't work, we feel existentially quite insecure. I think disasters are certainly more long-term and complex. We certainly saw that this summer. And we're certainly more exposed and vulnerable than we've ever been in the past. And that's largely because of where and how we place ourselves in the landscape. So we're pushing into hazardous areas and that's causing us quite a bit of grief. 
the cost of disasters is growing. There's no argument about that, I don't think. And I think finally, um, which is the good news, is that we're starting to see the need for fiscal accountability uh, and boardroom accountability on the decisions that we make in the context of climate. So um, APRA and ASIC, so the financial regulators, are saying to uh, companies and uh, boards of directors that uh, climate change is now a material risk and you must consider it when you make investment decisions, um, essentially when you're investing uh, other people's money, you must seriously think about the effect of climate change on that investment. So that's a good thing. So, but look, I'll finish off of that question by saying this, that unprecedented doesn't necessarily mean surprising. And what I hear a lot in the political commentary at the moment and the political rhetoric is the use of the term unprecedented in order to imply or to insinuate that we could not have possibly known um, or it's beyond our lived experience. Now, it probably is beyond our lived experience, but it's not right to say that it's beyond having the capacity to know about something. So we might package that as the interview goes on, but I'm always cautious with unprecedented because it does politically try and let people off the hook. And I think we have enormous capacity to anticipate things as as a humanity if we're prepared to take our minds there. And, of course, if we're not... Then, then they're not only unprecedented, but they are also surprising. But they're really only surprising because we don't adequately anticipate. So that, I mean, that I think was a very interesting part of the framework that you presented at the SACOS conference, where you suggested that uh, the community's capacity to grapple with these challenges sort of met at the intersection between the severity of the event and the potential or actual consequences of what happened as a result of those events. And I think I'm right in saying, Mark, that you suggested that um, despite the sort of risk management approaches that we might use, prevention, mitigation, adaption, resilience, response and recovery, that the community, your assessment was that the community was at the point where for sort of very severe crises like the bushfire or like coronavirus, the, we, we're either not doing enough or it's not possible to do enough to mitigate the consequences. Is that an added, Can you go and explain a little bit about what you meant by that? If I, I hope I've represented that properly, but please, yeah, by all means, unpack that for me if you would. Yeah, certainly. So, so what we tend to do in risk management is we use matrices of likelihood and consequence. So, so the, the most consequential, so you know, the most catastrophic potential of a disaster or a risk is, generally speaking, the least likely. Um, And when we use risk frameworks, we tend to downrate the risk on the basis of uh, likelihood or rarity. So we downgrade on rarity. So um, that's okay if you're looking at risk from an economic perspective. You've only got so much money, so where are you going to put it? Well, you're not going to put it in the things that are the rarest because you probably won't see a return on your investment. So we tend to downrate the risks on the basis of rarity. But the difficulty is that rarity doesn't reduce consequence. And when the event manifests in a physical sense, then the consequences are fully experienced. And so likelihood goes out the window. So what we see um, communities, businesses, governments do is trade off on rarity. And COVID-19 is a classic example where it's allegedly a one-in-a-hundred-year event and people are already making the mistake of thinking that it only happens once in a hundred years. And our political commentary is uh, using that reference and and so are some of the um, media commentators. It's an intensity measure, not a frequency measure. So it's, it's the level of intensity of an event, not the frequency. So it doesn't mean that it's only going to turn up once in 100 years. COVID-19 is an example. could come back in a different form, in a modified form, within five years or mm. 10 years or two years. We don't really know. The same thing happens in that, the natural hazards world. That 
We're training these more intense disasters down on the basis of relative rarity, um, and but they're becoming more frequent. And when they turn up, they're really causing us grief. So what we tend not to do um, is think too hard about them because we don't want them. The irony is with natural hazards, and I include pandemics on this, that there's no choice anyway. You don't get to choose a cyclone. You don't get to choose a bushfire or a storm or a flood. And I would argue you don't get to choose a pandemic either. So we may not have the money to invest in significant mitigation uh, or prevention for these things because it's just economically um, unviable, but we can invest time and effort into thinking about what they might mean, what they look like, or what they might look like, what they might mean, and what we might do about it. And the reason I say that, Liz, is that one of the greatest causes of human suffering is ignorance, of, of coming to realise that there's something we could have known and chose for whatever reason not to know about. And so it was there with an opportunity to know, to understand, to explore, to contextualise and to come to um, get to know, but we choose not to do it. So there's an arrogance with that. So, Mark, in that sense then when you look back at these decades of experience where you've actually, you know, you've lived in that space where you've tried to work out the confluence between what we can afford and what we should do, which is really what you're suggesting, as you look back on that, what what should, and given as you say that despite the fact that they only happen, you know, that there's a rarity to them happening but that they, that doesn't stop them happening, what should we be doing differently or what should we be doing in order to better prepare ourselves for those eventualities? Becoming more knowledgeable about their possibility. So, and, and I think really what underpins that is really coming to terms as a society or a community as to what's valuable. You know, what, what are we, in the face of those uh, future adversities, which we come to intimately understand their potential through narratives and through storytelling and through imagery um, over time. You can't you can't tackle these things in a single day, but you can unpackage them over time. And in so doing, really come to terms with what's actually valuable. Because, see, Liz, we're going to lose things in these crises. We just are. So you can't stop a catastrophic bushfire or a cyclone or a storm or a flood or a global pandemic uh, when you want to stop them. They only stop when they're ready to stop. So a bushfire only stops, a catastrophic bushfire only stops when the fuel runs out or the weather conditions change. So if the weather conditions prevail at catastrophic uh, fire weather levels and there's sufficient fuel on the ground uh, for the fire to burn, it will go wherever it likes for as long as it wants. There's not much we can do about that on one level. On another level, there's a lot we can do about if we accept that force of nature as something that's not controllable because it would change where and how we place it ourselves on the landscape, or it would help us reprioritise what's really valuable if we stood to lose something. The difficulty is that we don't really know what's valuable in in a detailed sense because we don't think enough about it, but boy, do we come to realise it when it's lost. So a bushfire will wipe out a town, and then we really know what we've lost, we really know what's valuable because that thing that we took for granted isn't there anymore. So if we better understood what it is that we value we would definitely change the way we prepared for these incidents. We tried to mitigate their effects, uh, the the way we responded to them and where we put the priorities on recovery. What sort of things would we do? So, I mean, I, that's, I think that's a very important comment. Mm. As a community in a society, what are the sorts of things that we would do to prepare better? What do you see? What do you see as the things that should be guiding our response? 
to inform yes, the weather in the future. So I'll use bushfire as an example because it's probably the most recent things that lived experience apart from the current COVID-19, which we're still trying to understand and interpret. But um, And some of the townships on the south coast of New South Wales were, there were attributes in those townships or relics or artefacts which were very important to the to the local community, which the broader system, you know, the, the services at the higher level simply did not understand. So a local brigade might understand, for example, that the pub's the most important artefact of the town because it's the social hub where everybody goes. But on in catastrophic crises, it's unlikely that the local brigade well, they won't have any capacity as a single brigade to fight fires at catastrophic level. But what's more likely to happen is a cavalry will roll into town from elsewhere, possibly as far away as Queensland or Victoria, and do what it thinks is the right thing to do, which is just save whatever's in front of it. And it may not realise that the, the pub's the most important thing in the town. So so it doesn't um, reprioritise its response efforts to protect that asset because it doesn't understand that it's so culturally important. There was a township in Western Australia, and look, this could be folklore. I've yet to fully validate it. I've had it partially validated. A town called Yarloop, which was destroyed in the Waruna fire. And the locals essentially said to the government after the town was burnt down, we we will not come back until you replace the war memorial. Um, and the reason the war memorial was so important because it's, it, it was an artefact of all, of all of those from the town who'd gone to war in World War One and World War Two, and that was important to the locals. It was destroyed in the fire. Now, could it have been protected? I don't know, maybe not. But if we at least knew about it, we might have been able to do something about it. And this is my point about notions of value, that at the moment systems and services and agencies, and I'm being a little bit generalistic here, but see. Um, something of value as life, property and the environment. Now, we're not going to argue about life. It's sacrosanct and it has to be preserved at all costs. But when you get to property and environment, we're not granular enough about what that really looks like. And we don't fully appreciate the social and cultural values that drive communities. And they either need protection or need prioritisation when things need to be restored. And we only start to ask those questions after we've lost them. And I'm seeing this playing out now in the bushfire recovery across Australia, that governments at all levels, and particularly at the high levels, are trying to understand where to place the investments for recovery and what's what's important and how, how should it be prioritised. Now, realistically, Liz, a lot of that can be anticipated with, with a good social dialogue, with skillful narratives, with participative democracy, and with a leadership that's prepared to be relational, that's prepared to sit in that space and hold space with a citizen and say, Let, let's take me through what's important for you and let me understand, help me to understand that so I can frame public policy or programs or service delivery objectives in response to those values. We don't do it at the moment. So that sort of fits into this um, idea that you have a sort of reclaiming the balance between resilience, shared responsibility, this notion of between individuals defining their own futures or being instrumental in their own futures versus institutions um, telling them how they're going to respond to these sorts of events. is there is there something? Can you explain a little bit about yes. that? How you think about it? Because that's an extension of really what you're saying, Mark, isn't it? You're saying that the role of the individual, the communities themselves, have to be instrumental in shaping their own futures in regard to these sorts of events. Yes, definitely. Why that's not happening sufficiently. No, I don't think it is. I think there's um, and there's a few reasons for that. There are there are pervasive uh, ideologies or what we call grand narratives operating in society, and one of them which is a very strong pervasion in modern Western society is individualism. And we have a marketplace that speaks 
profoundly to individualism because it drives the market. So the market says to to any individual, look, um, you've got a whole lot of problems and I can help you solve them if you spend money doing X, whatever whatever X is. Could be more yoga, more meditation, buy these supplements, take this vitamin, whatever the case might be. Um, so it sort of it's kind of knows that our desires are endless and it knows that we perceive all life as a series of problems that need to be solved. And so we've got ourselves into a narrative now in society where the individual is more important than the collective, than a more communitarian approach. And our politics speaks to that as well. So if you look at some of the public policy that's written around resilience, it talks about governments, uh, not-for-profits, institutions, and individuals. And it might mention communities. Sometimes it mentions communities, sometimes it doesn't, but it specifically mentions individuals. And then it, what it does, it puts an enormous amount of pressure on that individual to be resilient. But the difficulty is this if you have a society, an institutional framing, which is producing uncontrolled risk, which is, which is, for example, developing land in inappropriate places or not taking into account sufficiently the hazard landscape of that. Um, land that's about to be released and places people uh, through developments and through development consents into hazardous places, how can that resident or that individual really be resilient if the setting for which they've been placed or brought into through some level of ignorance because they don't fully understand the problem of the risk um, gets exposed to? So we've got these narratives that say to people, as individuals, you need to be resilient. But they're up against it if the institutions who are creating society are not taking seriously enough the hazards to start with. And so it's unbalanced. So to what extent do you or I have an opportunity to um, influence large-scale development or large-scale approval of development. Now, really, you only get a chance to do that through a democratic process of electing your local council and hope that they do the right thing. Or you might be able to put in a comment from time to time about your unhappiness or otherwise about a, a development that's going to happen in your area. The extent to which that complaint or that observation is taken into account is highly variable, of course. And that's about it. That's all the control you have. So if a government says you really need to be resilient in the face of all of these hazards and you'd be morally irresponsible if you're not, is that a reasonable proposition for a person who might be constrained mentally or physically or economically or socially, uh, you know, often by uh, external factors beyond their control? And my argument is that that's not reasonable. And so institutions have to come back to the middle, in fact, a little bit past the middle, and take on some more responsibility than they currently are about helping people not only to be resilient, but let's get the risk and the harms out of the systems to start with. And that's why in the task force, the first place we went to, because it was called the National Resilience Task Force, and the first place I went to was risk reduction. And a lot of people said, including some ministers, said, why did you do that? And I said, because if you don't reduce harm, the harms in social and societal systems, you cannot expect people to be resilient. If the harms are uncontrolled or not sufficiently controlled or not sufficiently understood or addressed, it is simply immoral and unreasonable and unethical to continue to put pressure on an individual to be resilient when the, the control of harm is not in place. And so that's just a really, I guess, simple but maybe comprehensive answer as to where we're at in society at the moment. So to fix that, we need to be more communitarian. So the individual has to surrender, um, you know, probably quite a degree of self-interest and take an interest in other people. And that's what COVID-19 is teaching us right now. COVID-19 fundamentally is about the consideration of other people. You or I may survive COVID-19 with not too much of a hiccup, but we could potentially give it to 400 people, of which 20 at least may die. 
from the disease. So, so whilst our liberties and freedoms are currently constrained and somewhat severely constrained, really, the, 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 the philosophical basis of the argument is that we need to be considerate of other people. So if we learn to do that in COVID-19, and I think we learn to do it during natural hazards as well, but often only after the event, and I'm suggesting that if we were more imaginative and more engaged on the issues, we'd probably move towards a more communitarian and considered view or considerate view before these things happened. But we tend not to do that because we don't like suffering, we don't like adversity, and so we won't speak to it. So um, you finished um, your presentation um, at the SACOS conference where you said there were sort of six considerations that you suggested we might think about in working out how to move forward from where we are now, Mark, to where you suggest we might better be um, as we go forward in the future. Can I just ask you, can I just talk to you about some of these and quite a good summary of the sorts of things that you've been saying today before we get into the more nuanced aspects of leadership in this context? Yep. Uh, you've spoken a lot about better participatory processes in risk reduction, resilience, response and recovery. Just so that's, I mean, that's one very clear, tangible way that we could behave differently. And can you talk a little bit about how you see how that might consideration might be taken into account? Yeah. So um, we have a, a we have a uh, pervasive uh, view in Western society that, on some, and it's quite perverse, really, that we can dominate nature or we're separate from nature. And, that, and that's founded in our um, philosophies of the mid-1600s, early 1700s. So with the, the rise of modernity and the birth of industrialisation, we took a view as a, as a well, certainly in the West we did, an Indigenous folk would uh, argue strongly against this and I would agree with them, of course. But, but from an industrialised society perspective, we took the view that we were separate from nature. Um, and so we don't incorporate the forces of nature into our thinking. And when they turn up, we see them as perils or we see them as adverse. And the reason we do that is because they interrupt our, our way of life and, and their expectations of what a good life actually looks like. What I'm suggesting is that we need to bring them back in as being part of life. So the, the exertion of the forces of nature of earth, wind, fire and water are part of living and they may well be inconvenient, but they're still part of living. So how do we better incorporate them? So to give you a really simple example, in economics, so when we look at the um, economic impact of natural hazards, they tend to be viewed as contingent liabilities. In other words, they're not on the balance sheet. We don't, we don't have a cash component in our balance sheets for natural disasters. We tend to see them as contingent and amortise the, the impacts over the forward estimates or the out years. Um, so if you... Just to extend that a little bit further, we don't really see them as part of our economic cycle. We see them as separate and, and as a disruption to the economic cycle. Well, I'm arguing that they're very much a part of the economic cycle and they should be factored in and we should be, we should be making room for them and bringing them into our broader considerations in a, in a greater way than we've ever done before. So, so yes, they may be inconvenient because of, and that's, they're inconvenient because that's the way we look at them, but, um, but they're also part of life and they're part of the natural cycle, and they've got to be much, much better understood and, most importantly, respected. Um, it was Thomas Hobbes who said that, you know, nature in order to be commanded must be obeyed, and he was the founder of the nation-state, essentially, and much of what we see as liberalism in Western society. And we've got the, um, the command bit right. Well, we haven't got it right at all, really, but we've certainly focused on the command bit. We forgot about the obeyed bit. Nature will always win. I say to people all the time, nature is much smarter than us. 
it's only our arrogance that gets in the way and, and the subsequent ignorance that follows. Nature will make the necessary adjustments to continue. We're seeing this in climate. Um, you know, I think we're fooling ourselves if we don't think we're having an effect on climate, and we are. Industrialisation has had a big effect on climate. But who's going to win the battle? It's not going to be us. It'll be nature. Nature will do whatever she needs to do to make the adjustments to continue the survivability of the planet in a broader context. And science will tell us that, that we have the potential to wipe ourselves off the planet if we don't make the adjustments. The Earth will still be here. The forces of nature will still be here. They just won't be survivable. So we can have the, we can have the battle if we want. We can stand up against nature with an arrogance and a hubris, but we're not going to win. We're just simply not going to win. So we've got to reframe this and be far more courteous and respectful. Um, to personify nature, as I have done in the course of this interview, as the feminine, which is you know, very pagan, but I think very relevant, she has demands that are non-negotiable, that can't be traded, and we have to respect those and incorporate them into our life. Second consideration you mentioned is that recovery needs to be governance structured and funded appropriately. I mean, you've already explained that we need to take it more into account rather than just reacting uh, when it's required. Is there anything else to add uh, when you, particularly around the sort of governance and structured aspects of what? Yeah, so it's not um, because we won't look fully at the potential for loss. Um, I don't think I think recovery is structured in a very subordinate way compared to response or preparation or mitigation. So, um, and the arguments are um, at least at the policy level that if you spend more money on mitigation and prevention, you spend less money on recovery. Um, now, that's that's true in time, but it's not linear. So what tends to happen is that all the money goes into mitigation and prevention uh, and even response on the basis that it's going to minimise recovery. But that's not what happens. Recovery is still required. It's, there's still an impact. There are still things beyond our control that we need to prepare for and navigate through, and that's called loss, and it's called suffering, and it's called harm. And those things are very difficult things for governments and institutions to speak to because it implies failure, but it is, in fact, part of being alive. Um, I say to people all the time that, you know, it's it's not so much that you can fix things in society, but you can have a better experience. And if we see these things as cyclical, systemic, and the world being in a constant state of flux instead of some sense of rigidity or permanency or, or stable state, then we can have much better experiences through the process of recovery because we accept the fact that the forces of nature are going to cause us um, so some level of suffering and some level of grief. We can accept that more readily, not that we want it, but that it's going to happen. I think we would make much wiser choices about recovery, and I think we would take recovery more seriously. But it's always been the poor cousin to response. And I think it's largely because society doesn't want that thing that's about to happen. So therefore, let's make sure it doesn't. But it's a false premise. It's a false premise. Uh, which goes to your point about disasters not being natural. Do you know what I mean? That they are part of the cycle. So the forces of nature are part of the cycle. The hazards that they produce are part of the cycle. The disaster only arises because of fundamentally where and how we place ourselves upon the landscape and the extent to which we're prepared to accept, accommodate and adapt to those forces of nature. And it's only when we don't do that that what happens when the force of nature manifests 
in, which is what we call a hazard, um, it intersects with society and then society fails. It loses the battle and then we call it a disaster because we've been inconvenienced, hurt or killed. Now, that is a disaster if we're hurt or killed. There's no doubt about that. But it's not the force of nature that caused it. It's, it's our ignorance of the potential effects of that force and where and how we placed ourselves upon the landscape without fully appreciating what that force was capable of doing. Now, there'll always be a gap in our knowledge there always be an element of surprise, but it's not as big as we think if we took the issue more seriously. But we traded off. One PhD research showed in spades that where there was an absence of knowledge about a hazard or a risk, that people defaulted to optimism. So if we didn't speak sufficiently to a risk or to the hazards that are associated with the risk or the exposures or the vulnerabilities, then people would default to optimism. That's how great. It's not a problem. Risk exists independent of whether we know about it or not. It's there whether we know about it or not. So if we choose not to know about it, it doesn't mean the risk goes away. The risk is still there. The only thing that goes away is our knowledge about it. So then, of course, it manifests. We get hurt or worse, and we say, how did that happen? And any reasonable inquiry would say we could have known a lot more about that if we had have taken the time to understand it better. But we're such a busy, just-in-time society that we don't take enough time to understand it properly. So, so it's it's on one level, is it's complex. On another level, it's actually quite simple, and it's about rebalancing between this notion of commanding nature and respecting nature, and under, and and using personification. We have used personifications through the course of human history. We use it in religion. We use it. We use personifications everywhere to try and understand. So we bring very, very complex. Um, aspects of life and we turn them into people. We, I'll give you a simple example. We call cyclones by names. They're generally um, female. Uh, I think, I think no, they can be male and female. So we give them a name, we give them emotions, and then we blame them when they, when they uh, cause us grief. And if you listen to the public narratives about Cyclone Irma, for example, you know, what she did, um, um, her ferocity, you know, she punished us, um, you know, she she did things to us. If you listen to the narratives, that's exactly what we say. Um, so we, we're used to personifying. So if we know how to personify nature, then why don't we therefore respect her and what she needs to do, what the forces of nature are that she exhibits, why, why they happen, and how can we better adjust to them. But we only do that when it's convenient. When it's not convenient, we ignore. So, and really, Yes, absolutely. A really important, I think, point that you then made, which goes to what you're saying, is that we need to reframe our understanding of vulnerability. What do you mean by that, Mark, and how does that manifest in terms of what you, of ways you might suggest we ought to move forward? Yeah, so, so vulnerability exists um, structurally, socially and economically. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen because of a storm or a flood or a fire or a cyclone or a pandemic um, impact. It happens because, we, because not everybody has the same opportunity to prepare or to know about or to prepare for to withstand or to recover from those forces. So all these forces in nature will actually show society, structurally, economically and otherwise, where the vulnerabilities exist. If people had a greater agency, if they were given greater opportunity to um, meet those standards of resilience, which are getting higher and higher every day, of course, which are predicated upon uh, good structural, economic and social supports, if that was uh, better distributed across society and more equitable, then more people would have an opportunity to navigate the complexity of these forces in nature. But not everybody has that opportunity. So, again, a really practical example that often 
um, the cheapest land is the lowest lying land that people on some level know that it floods. It's why they don't put expensive buildings there. They put cheap housing. Uh, who buys into cheap housing? Well, people at the lower socioeconomic levels of society. Um, can they afford insurance? Well, they, they might be able to afford it whilst the insurance company doesn't know about the hazard or the risk. But then they get a flood and the insurance company says, well, hang on a minute, you know, we go to put the premiums up. Five years later, it floods again. Well, hang on a minute, we have to put them up again. Somebody realises that it's a highly hazardous zone. The property values go through the floor and the risk premiums go through the roof. Then other people in society say, well, it's your fault for living there. <laughs> you go, hang on a minute, that's all that they could afford. Yes. Not, not only is it all that they could afford, because of where they're locked in structurally, socially and economically, they can't trade out. They can't actually trade their way out. So they can't afford to sell the property because they can't afford anything more expensive. So they're locked in. So we lock people in to society. Um, then the forces of nature turn up and then it exposes that vulnerability for what it is. And it pre-existed. It wasn't, it didn't just happen because of what happened. So so really the, the more we can rebalance the equities of power, wealth, and resource, the more we can redistribute our wealth in society, the more we can take into account these forces of nature and give people much more equitable opportunities on how to deal with them, we'll all be better off. And that's the communitarian view. Now, some would argue politically as socialist. I, I don't agree. I think the market can quite easily adapt to this and redistribute the wealth so that people have greater access and greater capacity to trade and greater capacity to purchase, um, so on and so forth. So I don't. I just don't think it's an issue of socialism or, or you know, left-wing politics at all. I think it's just pure common sense. Uh, it's probably centrist politics, probably sits somewhere in the middle. But, um, but it is on one level a political issue, but really I think it's an issue of common sense. How do you how do you redistribute some of these things so that people have a greater chance? On the next episode, Mark Crossweller discusses leadership in crisis on the Menzies Foundation Leadership Forum podcast.